It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show, James Van Ostel. I've got to be honest. I have to do this live read, and I'm intimidated to do it in front of you. Want me to, want me to go away? <laughs> no, no, I, I want you to stay, but but you're. I mean, when I do the commercial, you're you're, you're John Records Landecker. I don't, you know. What? I'm self conscious here. I'll make you go away for a second. Okay, it's Car Con Carne, still in quarantine. Quarantine Con Carne. I'm James Van Also. Welcome to episode 400. I knew when I got to the 400, it'd be a big celebration. And so I'm doing it in my home uh, with a radio legend, and we'll get to him momentarily. I want to mention as business owners are opening back up to serve their communities. They're faced with a lot of challenges as they navigate through the new normal brought on by the coronavirus. C at H Financial Services is here to help. They offer a variety of products that range from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates the expense associated with accepting Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express as a form of customer payment. C and H Financial Services eTab solutions, easy to set up for your business, for online ordering, curbside pickup, whatever. CNH also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs, which can help get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact CNH Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to chfs.us. Does that work? Is that yeah. all right, John? All right. Sure. Did okay? Hey, you make me nervous. I grew up listening to you. I don't, I don't want to mess this up. You're doing just fine. All right, so that guy right hit right there. Records truly is his middle name. He's John Records Landecker. Uh, uh, we've never met before. Nope. This is a real pleasure to finally meet you. That's him here. So, quick backtrack. Three years ago, Radio Hall of Fame. Very recently, oh. the, the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Yeah. In different creative fields, whether it's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or Golden Globes, whatever, some creatives are very touched and inspired to be recognized by their peers. Others are kind of aloof. Where do you fall with the recognition? Well, it's certainly not aloof and touched is, I suppose, a good, well, actually not in this climate. Uh, you know, <laughs> I uh, just watch where you do it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I'm touched. I'm hum humbled. I'm a little embarrassed. Um, I've found that these kinds of things are very arbitrary and are arrived at who knows how they get there. <clears throat> I mean, that goes for Hall of Fames and Emmy Awards and Oscars and all of that stuff. It's, there's a design to it to a certain extent. On the, on the part of the people who are anointing the recipients, let's just put it that way. I do want to thank you for doing this, especially this week. I'm sorry for your loss with Carl Reiner. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I've got a great, uh, Catherine Johns and I were doing mornings on uh, WGMK in the 90s and in the early 2000s, and Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks had the CD out, The 2,000-Year-Old Man in the Year 2000. And it is, if I do say so myself, it is a spectacular interview, not because of anything I did, but those two went Those crazy. two, yeah. Oh, just fabulous. Just fabulous. You are, you hold the distinction in my mind uh, of being the first radio disc jockey that I remember by name. You're the first guy who I listened to on the radio who I remembered the name of as I was growing no up kidding. in Chicago. It's wow. true. And 
looking at your autobiography, just thinking about you in general, something comes back from people when they talk about John Records Landecker, that being among that class, that, that radio class, you're the guy with the smallest ego in the bunch. Is that, is that accurate? I have no idea. Um, really, I think all of us had, well, who were you talking about? Now? <laughs> well, when I, well, when I think about that classic WLS lineup, when I think about Surratt, or Surratt yeah. The, um, no, Surratt and Larry didn't have big egos. I mean, Larry's whole act was, how you doing, Larry? About average. You know, I mean, he was sarcastic and um, very calm most of the time. And Bob works his ass off. And uh, nobody, you know, if somebody had had an out-of-control ego at WLS at that time, we somehow would have gotten them out of there. <laughs> I'm not sure how, because it never happened. But if it did, we'd take care of it. See, I believe that all businesses should have a zero asshole policy. That That's should just almost, be standard almost, HR. Almost impossible. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so you came to Chicago in 72? Yeah, late 71, 72. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you remember about that. The, the emotions, um, the, the nerves. Well, I was working at uh, WIBG in Philadelphia. And I had received a letter there from a guy named Mike McCormick, who was the program director of WLS, asking me if I wanted to apply for a job, and if so, please send an audition tape, which I did. And then I went home to Ann Arbor, Michigan for Christmas vacation. And I was over at a friend's house, came back to my house, and my mom said, WLS in Chicago called here, and they would like to talk to you. So I called them back. And then I got on an airplane and flew to O'Hare, got on a bus, which got out in front of what was then the, oh boy, what was it at that time? Um, executive House, right? On Wacker? Yeah, yeah. It's not there anymore. And the wind was coming, it was like being in that funnel of just like that. Uh, that was my first real impression. And I went in and I had a meeting and a dinner and they offered me the job and I took it and I flew back to Ann Arbor. And back in the day, I mean, you could hear WLS on the moon like that. Well, the thing was I could pick up WLS in Philadelphia in the parking lot of the station I was working for when I got off the air. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And you mentioned the demo tape. It's so funny. That's, that's a thing that all aspiring disc jockeys had to put together. They had to have their version of a reel, a cassette with their best bits, and you painstakingly put together a two-minute composite tape, knowing full well that the people listening to it listened to the first 15 seconds. They just knew. It's just... I, I, I don't know that, but I think you're probably right. Fair. You became known for Boogie Check. You just <clears throat> opened the phones up. Right. I, I, I remember listening. I mean, it's so interesting. Back in the day, I think much more so than in the present, how much of a shared experience radio was. I could listen to Boogie Check in my home. My friends would listen, and we'd all talk about it the next morning. It's interesting how radio brought people together. Having been in radio for a while now myself, the idea of just opening up the phones the way you did yeah. is so fearless and ballsy. As a listener, I guess I didn't even realize it. But as a radio host, I'm like, man, balls of steel. 
well, I guess, well, thank you, I guess. Uh, <laughs> clang, clang with the trolley. Um, I never thought of it that way. I, I was bored. Uh, we, were repeating, we were repeating the same songs over and over again, and um, I had really good ratings, so when that happens, you can do just about anything you want. <laughs> and I'm not sure where the idea came from, because when I went into work and went on the air, I didn't have it, but by the time I got off the air, I had done, quote-unquote, a boogie check. And then it was just sort of what comes next. Uh, the station didn't have a delay because okay. nobody put live phones on the air on top 40 AM stations. You either, you know, you did a request or you did a dedication, but nobody just went on the air for without any reason whatsoever. And then the kids found out they could say the big F <laughs> on the air before we could take it off because there was no delay at all. So eventually the station had to devise a manner by which obscenities could be removed, which they did. And then it became really a pretty big thing beyond anything I ever conceived of. And it is beyond anything I ever conceived of because it was like, not a throwaway, but there was no planning. And um, as it turned out, uh, I was really quite good at fielding uh, rapid phone calls from teenagers and replying <laughs> to them in some fashion. Um, I have attention, what do they call it? Attention deficit disorder. Yes. And this thing went boing, 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 boing. So, you know, I, my brain was just firing away like crazy. As I found out later, I didn't know it at the time. But yeah. Um, and it was just something that had never been done in that venue anywhere. And I even think that like, like Wally Phillips at WGN and uh, all those guys back in that era, their phone calls were all screened. Oh, and sure. They were, and they were on, I guess they were on a delay. Uh, my calls were not screened. They were just taken as they came in. And I've met more than one professional broadcaster since then who asked me, how did I edit all those calls together? And I tell them I never edited, edited one call. Uh, they were all live, every single last one. There's nothing like live radio. Uh, no. And taking phone calls without being screened, I'd do that at the drop of a hat if you could find a radio station that was willing to go that way. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't exist. Yeah, that, that simply doesn't exist. exist. Uh, not, I mean, if you had a delay, they won't do it, which is really sort of stupid. Talking about how real that was, you know, taking those calls in real time, riffing off responses, total improv work. Right. I, I think what you were doing there is what has been drilled into broadcasters ever since, rightly so, and that's authenticity. I mean, people, listeners, respond to people who are authentic and real human beings on the radio. And that's, you were being John Records Landecker. Well, I was having a, I'll be honest with you, I was having a really good time doing it. So there was no pretense or I don't know what you want to call it. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It was, uh, it was, it was like your community, so to speak of that's crazy, it. of crazy people. And they were, a lot of them were really young, you know, well, being 14, 13, 
Um, and WLS had massive ratings in that age group at night. So the phone calls just kept pouring in one right after the other. And it worked out well. Who knew? I, truly, though, being the top rated top 40 station in a city like Chicago with a signal that went out as far as you did, you literally owned all audience members under the age of 18 <laughs> for, across like 10 state lines. I mean, they, they, they were I don't all there. Know about that. Well, back in the day, I mean, there was no competition. It was, you listened to the radio. The, right. And there were only two stations in Chicago at that time who really played the hits, and that was WLS and WCFL. Right. Uh, the FM stations, like, uh, well, it was the Loop at that time. I think they called it, actually, it wasn't the Loop yet. It was called Smack Dab in the Middle, the station with the girls. And they played some sort of rock, and there were some other, I don't know, WXRT at the time was like, I think, bartered radio and had like Spanish programming. Right, night, right, yeah. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't any internet. There was no cable there was no satellite there was none of what we use today because the last thing on everybody's list is probably an am radio station i mean they'd have to get through all the fms even to get there so it was you know am on the top not bottom now but then it was am was king absolutely and uh, this is going to be radio nerd stuff but the Landecker sound, the way you layered your voice mm -hmm. over intro beds. Like mm -hmm. you had this, you spoke in cadence with mm -hmm. music and you found a way to not, it, typical DJs, you listen to the radio, they pull the music down so that their voice is big and prominent. Then the second they're done talking, they pot it back up and it's the most jarring experience when you listen, especially in the hands of a, a less seasoned broadcaster. That was not your style. You, you kind of nailed this. Well, I listened to, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and listened to Detroit radio. And specifically, there were two guys, Lee Allen and Joel Sebastian, who eventually ended up in Chicago. And they both did that. I mean, talking in cadence, getting into the intro, you know, being part of the song, so to speak. Um, it, sort of like a wall of sound, if you will. Um, because everything is just so tightly compact together. When I was in Philadelphia, I found out that the, our competing radio station was going out and selling against me saying, you can't understand what he's saying. The music's too loud. Yeah. Yeah. You're old. That's it. <laughs> That's it. So thinking about those WLS days. Now I started in radio in the early 1990s. I think I just missed the hookers blow and alcohol period of radio. Well, I don't know about the hookers, but yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, back in the day in WLS drinking in the studio. Oh God. <laughs> well, unfortunately, yeah, that was true. Yeah. And not all this, the time, not all the time, but well, sure. You need to give your body a break. Let's, let's be realistic. That point where there was an occasional, you know what it was? They, um, the station, there were a lot of engineers on each shift. Uh, the engineering um, contract, hour on, hour off. Hour, so somebody else always filled in every hour. And uh, it was just a 
I relied on those people. You know what I mean? Because if they didn't get it, I was going to have a crappy show. Sure. But if I had one of the really hot kids on there, it'd be great. But then there was this guy, I'm not going to mention who it is. He turned out to be a great guy and I made a character out of him and he was a blast, but he was being shifted from the day to the night. And I was warned that this guy was a real hard guy to get along with. So, well, maybe I'll go get a bottle of something and see what happens. And that was pretty much how all that started. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I know things were a little crazy. There's one story I heard where you hit the bars on Rust Street. Next thing you know, you're in Las Vegas. Uh, Well, no. What happened was uh, I was nominated for the Billboard Air Personality of the Year. And our morning man, Charlie Van Dyke, was leaving WLS and going to Los Angeles to KHJ. And we went out to dinner the night before he left. And uh, Don the Beachcombers, does that make any, ring any bell with you it at all? rings a bell, but not, not, all, not a lot of bells. On, gosh, what was it on? Um, near the Rush Street area, but not on Rush Street itself, I don't think. And they had these drinks with umbrellas in them, let's just put it that way. And you don't know what you're consuming. And yeah, I apparently in a complete drunken state was able to decide that I was gonna go to Los Angeles right then. And I somehow got on the air, out to the airport and on the airplane and sort of quote unquote, if you will, came to over the Grand Canyon. And I didn't win. And I almost got fired. But all's well that ends well. That story kind of starts out like a kidnapping story. Just uh, you wake up and you're you're flying over the Grand oh, Canyon, oh, you don't know where you are. Like well, I knew what I was well, once I woke up, I realized. Oh man. Yeah. I was talking a, a couple nights ago with Tom Dreesen on the show. Oh and, yeah, legend for sure. He was talking about how comics have their material stolen from them all the time. Did he tell you our story? That he did not. And that's what I'm leading up to. He told me about how Robin Williams used one of his jokes on a Mork and Mindy episode. And we we got into a conversation about comedy theft. You had a bit stolen, didn't you? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, that, I believe what you're referring to is the Dancing Edos and Jay Leno. Yes. Which he insisted was something they just came up with on their own. But his bit was exactly the same as mine, with the exception of changing the lyrics to YMCA. I still, I was doing YDNA. I don't remember what they did to it, but they did it exactly as I had done it. And I got calls and my brother and, hey, they're doing your bit on the Tonight Show, yada, yada, yada. And um, so we got through to Jay Leno and he went on the air and he insisted. Oh, and I had sent him this package with all that stuff in it like two days before this thing happened on TV. But he insisted that, uh, oh, we don't think, uh, we don't accept unsolicited outside material. 
I don't understand. No, no, no. Our guy, <laughs> you don't see John. They have to go to the studio. They got to sit there for a couple of days and record it. They just don't come out. Whatever. Um, the Tom Dreesen thing is that he used to be, uh, oh gosh, what was the other guy's name? Tim they were com- T- yeah. They were a comic duo and they would have like open mic nights at, I don't know, restaurants, whatever, bars. And Bob Surratt and I would go to these every once in a while. And then time marches on, years go by. And Tom Dreesen is coming back to Harvey, his hometown, to appear at like a Holiday Inn or something. And Bob and I go to see him. And he says, John, yeah, I tell all my young comics about you. I said, you do? He said, yeah, because that one night over at such and such a place, you got so drunk that you went up there and started insulting the Japanese tourists that were there. And um, I have no memory of this. So I tell all my young comic friends to not do that. So I guess let's fast forward to sobriety on that note. Yeah. Uh, when, did, when did that happen for you? 28 years ago. That's huge. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. And it's radio is a tough business, man. You're surrounded. At- I don't think that I don't really think that radio had anything to do with it. I, I just think that uh, that was my personality. Um, yeah, there was sex, there was drugs, there was rock and roll, but still um, some people succumbed and some people didn't. I don't really think it was just because I was around it, not to the extent that I got into it, at all. I mean, okay, maybe some of the, some people like occasionally or tried it once and didn't like it or ooh, I that, that makes me feel bad. I just threw up. I'm never going to do that again. I was, oh, that made me feel bad. I threw up. When can I do this again? <laughs> you know. Well, let's talk about the rock and roll part of sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. Your, da- your dad didn't think rock and roll was a legitimate <laughs> form of music. But well, you you grew up a music fan. Yeah. Um I was there uh, as a youngster, so to speak, when all of this rock and roll sort of emerged. You're, you were uh, the Elvis guy, as you describe, as opposed to a Pat Boone guy. Yeah, absolutely. And although I had nothing against Pat Boone at that time, and um, I was really into the guys on the radio, and I was into anything on the radio, quite frankly. Uh, I built the crystal diode radios and cigar boxes, and, so, and tried to tune in radio stations. Uh, I'm not going to get into what a crystal diode is, but believe me, it's no big deal. <laughs> um, and there was like a station in Detroit, uh, um, I think sort of like a public station of some kind or a college station, and they had a show called Ask the Professor. And they had like three or four professors there. My dad was a professor at the University of Michigan. So they'd have three or four professors there and people would write in questions. And if you stumped the professor, you received a subscription to the Atlantic. You know what that is, the magazine? Of course. Okay. But if you didn't, you received a firm hand clasp extended through the radio. And I thought, that's awesome. It's awesome. I love that. You know, um, I listened to news, 
the day that John Kennedy was assassinated, I went over to a friend's house. They had a tape recorder. I was recording all this stuff off of uh, the radio. And, um, yeah, I I was always into it. I went, loved rock and roll and, um, always, and still do. Speaking of when JFK was assassinated, you were in a radio station when Martin Luther King was shot, weren't you? Uh-huh. Yeah. I was at WILS in Lansing, Michigan. I was going to Michigan State University. Stevie Wonder, who was from Detroit and blind, as we all know, would come up in the Lansing area to, there's a special school there or instructors or some kind of thing. And he was friends with the music director of the station, Craig Dudley. So one night, in comes Stevie Wonder and a few other people from Motown. And Stevie sits down and Craig sits down to run the controls and Stevie starts being a disc jockey. They're putting, you know, the hits on and Stevie's just talking over them and, you know, all that. And I'm standing at the back of the studio. And then there was an interruption with a bulletin from the news department. First, he had been shot. Then there was another one later. He's dead. And the vibe in the room was silent, but not, that was the word I'm looking for, but not a problem really. Um, and then, and after a bit, they continued on. Uh, it wasn't like a stop everything. No, no, well, certainly there was the shock that ran through the room and everybody I'm sure thought, uh-oh, we're here. Motown's here. Martin Luther King just died. Stevie Wonder's on the air. What's going to happen now? And I don't have a super clear memory of exactly what happened afterwards, but I confirmed all of this with Craig Dudley last year. Because sometimes you think of stuff happening in the past, and years later you go, is that some sort of false memory or something? How do I have this memory that I was going with Stevie Wonder uh, when Martin Luther King was shot? But yeah, we were all there. That's crazy. Yeah. You retired five years ago? I didn't retire. I quit. Let's go there. Why did okay. you quit? Because radio had become, the kind of radio I was doing anyway, had become <sighs> unbelievably restrictive with r- rules of the format about how many seconds you could talk, when you could start how long it could last. And I was bored out of my mind. And I just said, well, I've had it. I, you know, I'm not having fun. Why am I here? So I quit. And it sort of got twisted around to retired because of coal. Well, of course you can't retire because well, anybody his age who walks away from a piece of some, from some kind of work probably is uh, down in Florida now going to dinner at 4.30, you know. <laughs> um, I walked, and that was that. Um, but that's the story. I mean, I, I have done a variety of things uh, since then. Uh, some have to do with radio and some don't. Um, nothing has really been a home run. 
But uh, if you don't try, you'll never know, so to speak. So I know you're taking acting classes. I took uh, two acting classes a couple of years ago in Los Angeles. Um, was that hard? Was that weird coming from um, it was a broadcaster? I know. Uh, what was more weird was I was 70 years old and everybody else was 24 in Hollywood. Okay. So, um, but it worked out well. They were fantastic. I had a great time. I was pretty good at it, quite frankly. Um, I've done a couple of plays out here in Michigan City, Indiana. Uh, Spinning into Butter by Rebecca Gilman was a big hit a few months ago. Um, she was from Chicago. It's about racial profiling on a college campus. Imagine that. Uh, was set to do another one, but COVID uh, put the kibosh on that. So... So talking about how, oh, go ahead, John. No, I've been to LA uh, a number of times. Uh, my daughter, Amy, my youngest daughter, is an actress, actor probably, who, who I would visit regularly. And she got on a television show that was on Amazon Prime called Transparent. And this was a big deal. So I fly out there and I'd go on the sets and sort of take all that in and become friends with like the sound editor and you know, the director and um, there was a direct Chicago. You'd be surprised how many people out in LA know about or are from Chicago. It is insane. Uh, and the people who were in charge of casting the show uh, were WLS listeners who were from Chicago. And it was like, Oh, I can't believe I'm talking to John Records Landecker's daughter. So <laughs> that's uh, amazing. That's insane. You know what I mean? Uh, but I've always liked. Well, I'm not. I never really explored acting before, but uh, not, you know, like in high school. But uh, I was always really interested in film, and I took two or three film courses at Columbia College in the midst of that whole WLS era, and. Uh, Jim Martin, who was an instructor and some advanced students, shot a documentary of me at WLS called Studio A, Profile of a Disc Jockey, that was sold to the Learning Corporation of America and distributed who knows where. Uh, if you want to see it, it's on YouTube. Of course. I'm a lot younger and I'm smoking cigarettes in the studio. Yeah. Yeah, you were. 1970s, baby. <laughs> So you talked about how restrictive radio had become or has become in your opinion. What can radio do to regain that mojo or regain John Records Landecker's trust? I'm doing a podcast, which to me is just another way of delivering radio. It's audio entertainment. I think I'm going to start to answer my own question and then I'll throw it back to you. But I think because of COVID-19, whether it's broadcasters or musicians, creatives in any field I think have needed to innovate around and through this and find well, I that's, ways I think to do that's things. a great thing. I mean, Absolutely. I saw a final, I, there was a show on CBS. It was a legal show of some kind. I don't remember the name of it right now, but I read that they were, they had done a final episode on zoom, a dramatic episode, not just, you know, talking, yeah. I mean, scripts, the whole nine yards. Then later, of course, they would put in the music and stuff like that. That's fantastic. 
And I was talking to Amy about it. I said, you know, I think this is going to stick around even after all of this is said and done and we're back to quote unquote normal. The whole idea of using this facility to do things like this and what they did, that's here to stay, I think. I think it'll, the, the quality of it will go up drastically as Absolutely. You know, we get like professional lighting and blah, blah. That's what I need. I want professional lighting. Well, you know what you should buy? A lamp. No. Wait a minute. Hold on. You don't know about this? You don't know about these? I, I know it. I've seen them. They are. Everybody's got them. You need it. You, it's just, this was like 150 bucks. Okay. And it even goes, goes higher than that. And it goes all the way down. It looks very sci-fi, very space age. Well, uh, if you watch a lot of uh, people on the TV who were there from their homes, you can sometimes see a reflection in their glasses of this round light. And that's what it is. And that's where this light comes from. See, I'm so glad we're talking tonight. <laughs> you're, you're setting me down a good path. You're, you're really pu putting me in position to, to dominate this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. I appreciate that. So, no. all right. So what does radio do? How, do, how does radio either through COVID or just looking towards the future, what does radio do to better itself and, and stay viable and important in your eyes? Um, I think, and this is just my opinion, and I could be totally wrong, but you have to find owners that are willing to go that way. And then it'll happen. But you tell me who that is, and I'll be very shocked. And I still believe, and it, it's a cliche with broadcasters, but I still believe it's true. Local is everything. Oh, you know, I think so. You bet. And there's, there's less of that than there's ever been. You can't stress that enough, especially as people's attentions are as fragmented as they are, as they bounce from Hulu to Netflix to Amazon Prime to HBO to whatever. How, how do you appeal to them? You talk about things that matter to them. You talk about that pothole on Pulaski or whatever. It, it has to mean something to them. Look at, look at Bob Surratt doing mornings on WGN. Mm -hmm. He's like number three in the morning. And that's what he does. And, and talks, about not old, talks about that. Talks about the restaurant. Talks about the whatever. One of my all-time favorite local TV shows was when Surratt hosted Chicago Tonight. That was one yeah. of the best local runs, period. You should have seen him do Fox thing in the morning. Oh, yeah, I did. Of course. That was hysterical. That was hysterical. All right. So what do we have to look forward to from John Records Landecker? Wait, do you have anything cooking anything planned are you um would you ever do a podcast if i ever had the motivation or the interest in something that would sustain itself uh i don't know you know i always i always would i did well when i was part of a group uh and that wls era was a group effort a synergy in the radio station between just about every department, the air staff, the engineers, whatever. So there's a lot of energy going on in there. And that's what I feed off of. Now you put me in somewhere alone, it's going to be a disaster. So as I found out, so um, if that's, a, oh, 
That's me throwing my voice. Uh, all right, so what kind of, what kind of, what kind of dog? Uh, Colt. It's a big bark. It's, it's a medium-sized dog with a variety of lineages. Um, it's a mutt, so to so speak. Is your dog freaking out right now because of fireworks? No, no, not at all. Fireworks, we have, we have two dogs. The other one doesn't bark that much, and neither of them are bugged by fireworks. But if anything happens in front of the house, I mean anything, that dog goes nuts. So that's the way it is. Yeah, I my mean, dog. He's on medication. We've got a calm collar on him. Bought him a thunder coat. He doesn't care. I, I need to look into the thunder coat. My dog is just a wreck. Because there's, there is military-grade fireworks being blown off in my neighborhood right now. It's insane. There's an arsenal down the alley. And you know it's legal here. Oh, right. You're in Indiana. Yeah. So, kaboom. I see your billboards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You always know when 4th of July is coming because all the billboards on the tri-state switch from yeah. strip clubs to fireworks places. I have been doing a once-a-week call. See, this is the beauty of doing all this stuff on Zoom. This is what I think interests people is oh, so do seeing, I. Without, seeing how people actually live. Oh, well, Lendecker's got a noisy that, dog. When uh, Jimmy Fallon was doing something, his kids would like climb on his back. Yeah. People love that stuff. I don't it, know if you love it, the dog. But and it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's authenticity. It's, it's, yes. This is real. Absolutely. Um, and some people can operate in that venue and some people can't. True. Um, some people are not spontaneous. Some are not, they can't easily adapt to a brand new unexpected situation that is now there because something live happened and other people can. And uh, the more unexpected, authentic stuff that happens, the better it's going to be everywhere, I think. Not just radio, but doing stuff like this, the, the way that, uh, as I mentioned just a moment ago, these primetime and late night TV hosts are all doing basically what we're doing and kids are showing up and who knows what and something falls down and they don't look as great as they do when they're in the studio at NBC. And, uh, you know, so I think no matter what venue it is, uh, I think the authenticity part of it is vital to any success of any venture like that. I've been saying this for a while. I I think it's totally normal to react to COVID-19 with concern, Mm -hmm. fear. It's this collective trauma that we're all sharing. And I think it's totally appropriate to have a a reaction of paralysis. Like, Oh my God, I am stuck. I don't know what to do. But for the creative community, I think you need to bully your way through it and and find your way around it because- I'm I'm a, I'm in the demographic. I'm in the age group that's prime to get COVID nineteen. Right. I'm over seventy. I have uh, bronchial uh, chronic bronchitis. I have a low grade COPD. I'm like a, a sitting duck. But you know, you just have to deal with that. Um, and you know, I'm really pissed off the way a lot of people treat old old folks. They're complete assholes. I mean, they have no regard. I said, now I really sound old. Those youngsters, stay off my lawn. Uh, you know, they're running around going to bars. They don't give a shit. They don't know. You know, 
it's like, see you later, because I'm like messed up, and I've got Clorox, and I'll wipe everything down before I take a step anywhere. Uh, but it's okay. Um, I do a once a week, I've been doing a once a week radio show uh, out here in, in Michigan City with a friend of mine named Mike Dempsey. And he's never worked professionally in radio and he's from Michigan City. And he asked me to join him on a radio project a few years ago. And we get our own sponsors and things like that. And it has evolved to the point that uh, we have our own little office in a building uh, in Michigan City and our own corporation. And uh, I'm working on rebranding it. <laughs> I love it. I, I think there's something, and don't take this the wrong way. I think there's something very attractive about doing low stakes radio. Oh, yeah. Guess what? They don't tell me, either of us, what to say or what to play. I mean, really. Okay, we can play whatever we want. Uh, the slogan on the show is that it's a feeling, not a format, which means that whatever we feel like doing, we do. And that could be literally anything. Well, and that's just it. I, I always wonder when I hear music stations not reacting to the world around them in real time. Something as simple as it's a gorgeous sunny day and the classic rock station is going to play Rain Song by Zeppelin. Uh, right. Well, that's an, easy, that's an easy one. I mean, we're a little bit deeper than that, but yeah. But on the surface, like being able to pivot and basically read the room and do your thing. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, with the help of Bob Stroud and Matt Bisbee, uh, I wrote a coronavirus parody song months ago called, uh, to the Beatles, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And it got like about 17,000 views on whatever. Uh, and it sounds so awesome because Stroud can really sing and oh, yeah. Matt Disney can really produce. And even other radio stations, um, I know up in Milwaukee, they called me and said, we're playing it twice in the morning. Or, you know, uh, and that's now. You know what I mean? That's not WLS or right. whatever. Um so there are ways to do things if you are so inclined. And uh, of course you have to always consider what's around you at all times and the whole COVID-19 thing. And we'll see where it goes, but I have a great time doing it. That's awesome. John records Landecker. I'm going to stop the Facebook live. I do want to thank everyone who's been paying attention in real time. Um, let's see. Bill Gallagher says, this is awesome. Such a huge fan of John Records Landecker. Uh, Jacques says, that's what I love about working in small market radio. A lot more freedom. Oh, yeah. Uh, just lots of people watching. Thank you for that. I'm going to stop the uh, live stream, and then I'll say my formal thanks to John. You're formal thanks. Welcome. That was great. I, I really appreciate you doing that. Thank you for asking.